Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles. How much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast and also from Los Angeles because today we are joined by the one and only Mr. Lawrence Juber. Hello, Lawrence. Hello there. Now, chances are, folks, if you're listening to this podcast, you already know who Lawrence Juber is, uh, being a guitarist, of course, in the last iteration of Wings. But he has a career that predates and postdates that particular piece of employment. After graduating from Goldsmiths College, he was already a seasoned session professional when he got tapped on the shoulder to join Wings in 1978. And after the band, he has continued to work his music in every medium possible, TVs, films, theatre. And in the 21st century, he has released a series of instrumental guitar records that have uh, managed to include volumes of reinterpretations of Beatles classics and one of Wing's reinterpretations to boot. He's also an author with the fantastic photographic biography Guitar with Wings, which is a unique behind-the-scenes view of his time in the band. And we are delighted to have him with us here today. Thank you for joining us. Oh, happy to be here. Um, whenever we you know, have somebody talking to us, we always start with the the barn door question of you know the first exposure to Beatles music or you know uh, the, the you know the, the the attitude of the band and, and it, it seems looking at your biography you know you were just the right age to actually have a, a some kind of impact from that music. Oh, I was certainly the right age. I mean, um, 1963 was, of course, you know this kind of growing wave of Beatlemania in England and. Um, I started playing guitar in November 1963 on my 11th birthday. And it was right after they did the command performance, you know, yeah. the Rat the Jewelry show. Um, and, um, you know, my, my dad wanted me to play the clarinet, uh, which didn't really appeal to me. Actually, he wanted me to play the saxophone, but um, <laughs> didn't have those, they didn't offer those in school. So I said, all right, I'll learn clarinet. Um, and, but I made sure to put myself at the bottom of the list. So they ran out of instruments before they ever got to me. Um, and then, you know, because the Beatles all of a sudden had become kind of legitimate, it wasn't yep. just a hooligan thing, you know, they were playing for royalty. And I think that was enough to convince my parents that a, uh, an inexpensive acoustic guitar would go over well for my 11th birthday. And it did. I just never put it. Was there music in the house? Was there, were there people playing uh, instruments already? Lot. The radio, you know, there was mm. a lot of BBC. I mean, whether it was, uh, you know, um, Brian Matthew with his, you know, pop chart stuff or two-way favorite family favorites or the Billy Cotton Band Show or whatever. I mean, we had a we had a record player, but we didn't have um, we didn't have very many records. Now, my grandmother um, had something of a collection, but there was a lot of comedy records there. Um, and, you know, and at that age, of course, I was listening to the Goon Show and um, all of that. But, but you know, we, I mean, it was not only the Beatles in 63. I mean, we had the Stones, we had the Animals, you know, and, and my listening kind of was very much focused on Radio Luxembourg, which was where you could hear all the American Top 40 stuff. So that was where I first started hearing Motown records, for example. Hmm. Um, but the Beatles were just so prominent. And my f the first album I bought was was with the Beatles. The day it came out, cost me thirty two shillings and sixpence. <laughs> uh, and you you mentioned in the book that your first gig was a Mersey Beat gig. It was Jerry and the Pacemakers. Is that right? Well, the first concert I first saw. First concert, yeah. Um, it was Jerry and the Pacemakers and um, Billy J. Kramer. 
And actually, I, I learned uh, when I started Googling it recently, I realized that it was July of 63. So it was before I started playing guitar, but the motivation was kind of growing at that point. <laughs> and I still, I, you know, Billy Jay and I always have a laugh about it when I see him because uh, that's, you know, it's amazing when you can go back that far. Yeah. We're talking about almost 60 years now. And was it whenever you got the guitar, was that, did you just know instantly you picked up the guitar that that was going to be? Oh, yeah. I, I knew that I fell in love with the instrument. Mm. Um, it wasn't until I was about 13 that I really understood that there was a career path there. Mm. It was a local band leader started taking me out on kind of weddings and stuff. And I, you know, I was pretty green, but, but I had a, a decent ear and I could read music a little bit. And um, that just kind of started the pro process. And then when I learned that the kind of the brass ring was to be a studio musician, because I was kind of a shy teenager, I wasn't overly motivated by the spotlight. Mm. I mean, I put gigs together you know, with friends. And I, I had a, a band with some friends that we used to rehearse like every Saturday night we'd go and get whatever the latest Beatles or Stones or Kinks or the Who record and you know, learn those tunes. Um, and, um, it, but, but for me, it was like, I didn't want to, I had a professional opportunities from the time I was about 15, but I didn't want to leave school because my parents were, grew up in London during the Blitz. And my dad left school at 14 and my mom at 15. And, and I had educational opportunities and, you know, I, I didn't want to not take advantage of those. So even though I could have, you know, by the age of 16, gone out on the road and, you know, been in a band and, and I was doing that to some extent. I mean, I played in a top 40 band and, you know, I'd be doing my homework on the, on the, in the van. Um, I guess right around 15, 16, but, but it was just because I was also kind of into classical guitar and music in general, uh, I, I was kind of setting my, my goal really to be a musician, one well-rounded musician, you know, slash guitar player. And that's a prosticated idea to have. Yeah. Uh, at that age. Well, I think that, you know, it, uh, I mean, we had music education in school, mm -hmm. so I was fascinated by it. And because as as I was kind of collecting records and starting to understand that classical music was just the same kind of thing as rock and roll, it was just put together differently and just yeah. really trying getting engaged in that um, to understand music better. And so I, you know, and I, I studied classical guitar because I wanted to do A-level. Um, I don't know if they still have A-levels, but then it was A-level yeah. And you couldn't do that without having like grade six on classical guitar. So I dutifully learned some Bach and Terega and Fernando Sor and the kind of the classical repertoire. And because I could read and I had some technique, it was not such a difficult thing. I was just never motivated to be a classical guitar player. Hmm. And then once I got through through my A-levels, and I, I was actually going to go, um, there, there, I don't know if it's still there, but there was a school, music school in Leeds, um, Leeds College of Music, which is the only place in England you could kind of study something beyond classical guitar conservatory style. I mean, it was, that was where you could kind of get some training to be a studio musician. Um, kind of like Berkeley School of Music is in Boston. But um, when I got my A-level results and I got an A in music, and then it was like, wait a minute, I don't know that I want to leave London. I, I had been paying my dues even before I knew what it meant to pay dues. Hmm. Musician around London. So I'd been working in all kinds of contexts and making money doing it. I mean, I was, you know, and that was important also because my parents didn't have a lot of money and, and to be able to be self-supporting um, was was a very very valuable thing, and so um, I decided I was going to stay in London, and I I took what you know eventually became known as a gap year, um, but at that time it didn't have a name. It was just me deciding not to leave town, and then I applied to London University Goldsmiths College, um, where you could study music 
a music degree, but you didn't have to be a, a, like a church organist to be able to pass the audition. Whereas King's College, which was the other place, was really kind of old school. But, but Goldsmiths was much, much hipper. And Stanley Glasser, yeah. who was a professor there, was a jazz guitar fan. So my interview there was you know, basically revolved around kind of discussing relative merits of different jazz guitar players, which I thought was very cool. Um, and I spent three years at Goldsmiths studying music and musicology. I didn't study guitar there because I was always self-taught. And I guess from a guitar point of view, in the popular culture, you know, the, the notion of what was possible on an electric guitar was happening, was changing an awful lot throughout the late 60s with, you know, Hendrix Cream and the evolution of the Beatles and all that kind of stuff. So by the time you hit college, you know, the, the, there's a different range of possibilities that you can apply to your day-to-day -day playing, I guess. Up to a point, yes. I mean, within the college um, ecosystem, uh, I mean, I was teaching guitar. Um, I did a little t guitar teaching there, and I was playing it. They had a, a jazz band, which I played in, but I was already, at that time, I was in the National Youth Jazz Orchestra, um, which was really a farm team for studio players. And um, so what I was doing outside of college musically was more directly relevant to my career. Um, what I was doing in college, I mean, I was playing Renaissance lute. I was, uh, and I was in the 20th century music ensemble, which was, which was extremely challenging, especially because uh, our, um, for a while our, our conductor was, was a 19-year-old Simon Rattle. Oh, okay. Really like stuff. And I, he was basically using us for target practice, I think. I mean, it was. Like, <laughs> but but it, and, and then in college, I started doing things like I would go sub for the one or other of the guitar players in Jesus Christ Superstar in the West End. So um, I was getting a very broad kind of musical education, mm. um, and, but all with the goal of becoming a studio musician. And obviously that goal of becoming a studio musician, you know, it's it's to do with networking and it's to do with the quality of your work and gaining a reputation. And the fact that you seem to achieve an awful lot quite quickly, you you, you obviously had a fantastic work ethic and reputation and a superior set of skills. Well, I was certainly dedicated to the idea of being a professional guitar player. Hmm. And... As a result, I was networking as much as I could. Now, remember, you know, this is the era before computers, cell phones, you know, websites, social mm. media, any of that. I mean, it was really what got me the big break was really I, I was on a TV show, um, a BBC Two TV show with um, the National Youth Jazz Orchestra. And I was spotted by a, a contractor and we used to call them fixers in America, you call them contractors, but a fixer named David Katz, who was a violin player, who was responsible for getting quite a few people into the studio world. And um, it was funny because the when I was in college, the house I lived in in the East End of London, I lived in Limehouse, um, was, I, I lived on the, down on the bottom floor, and we had to wait a year and a half to get a phone installed. <laughs> and the phone was on the top floor. So I had to like run up four flights of stairs to get to the phone. And I'm there like uh, the next day after this TV show had aired. And I'm in my room and I hear the phone ringing because no answering machines. This was 1975. And just this Pavlovian response where I just dashed up the stairs and I just made it to the phone in time. And it was David Katz. And he said, well, darling, and apparently he called everybody darling, um, just his manner. Um, I saw you on the telly last night and I've got some sessions for you. And he gave me the dates and I said, David, I hate to say this, but those are my, the two days of my final exams. I can't miss them. <laughs> I thought I'd never hear from him again. And then he called a week later and he started booking me for stuff and then I would be doing sessions and then meeting other contractors and, and producers and you know and it just kind of evolved from there um, I was working like you know sometimes seven days a week doing three or four sessions a day I was going to say are you, are you basically then just literally running from studio to studio you know from Trident to Olympic to exactly I mean um, I, I could be on a an 8am jingle session at um, Olympic, and then 
have a session at Trident or at Abbey Road. And, you know, and this is London where parking is a, a challenge. And you know, Trident, you know, was in this little alleyway in mm. Soho. And it was tough to park around there. And I, you know, I've got, I don't know, at the very least four guitars, an amplifier and a, and a, a case full of pedals and sometimes more. At one point, when the MIDI guitar, when the synth guitar started coming out, I was schlepping a Roland guitar synth around too. So um, it was, you know, that part of it was challenging. And there was only one guy in London that did cartage mm. for musicians. Mostly that was drummers, and his van was full, so I could never get in with him. So I ended up. I mean, I you know, I just run from one session to the next. Um, which always seemed to work out. There was a, there's a list of people that in your book that you, you did sessions for. Um, you mentioned Adam Faith, who seems to have been a bit of a taskmaster. You know, he, he kind of put you... Yeah. Well, he, and Dave, he and Dave Courtney um, were kind of producing team. Um, and, you know, those were the kind of... I mean, I remember that one session we were working for, with Chris, uh, doing a record for Chris Andrews, who wrote a lot of the Sandy Shaw hits. Mm. Um, and it's, I don't know, what, two, three in the morning, and Simon Phillips is playing drums, and there's, you know, it's, it's a small session group, and we're on, like, take 60 or something, and and we start with four bars in, and and, and Terry, as you know, as, as he was known, Adam Faith, um, came over the, the headphones and said, okay, lads, let's have another one exactly the same. <laughs> one Terry, yeah. but, but, that was, but then there would be sessions where you get it in one take. I mean, that's just yeah. the nature of kind of the studio world. But, um, but you know, interesting lessons to learn about how things work in the studio and how the creative process works and what, as a studio musician, one could contribute to that, whether mm. it's you know, coming up with a cool lick, you know, making up parts to fit an arrangement. Sometimes it would be all written, but sometimes it wouldn't. You'd have to, to still to this day, I mean, it's, I'll walk in on a session and, you know, you have no idea what, you, what you're going to be getting. I mean, if I know it's a, if it's a movie session at Warner Brothers or, you know, one of the, the, the big studios, then I have a pretty good idea that I'm going to be walking into a room with an orchestra and, mm. you know, at least one other guitar player and, um, and be stuck in a booth in the corner. And if you don't get your headphones on in time, you don't hear the cue being called out and then you're in trouble. I mean, it's really, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's a high pressure kind of thing um, at, at its most extreme. But then yeah. you know, a more rock and roll session could be a lot of fun. But when I joined Wings and, you know, it went from kind of doing three tunes in three hours to like spending a day or more on one tune, it was like a very different kind of studio culture. Yeah, yeah. You, you, mentioned, you mentioned in the book that you, you worked with Cleo Lane and George Martin was the producer. Was that your sort of first direct contact with someone in the, in the, in the Beatles circle? Um, yes, it was. Um, I remember there was uh, at one point we... Um, we were, we'd done like four takes of something and, you know, this was very early on in my career. So I thought, you know, you're supposed to get it right the first time. And George, um, you know, I said, you know, is this okay? And, and Joe said, well, you know, with the Beatles, it was like, you know, it was, was Tuesday better than Thursday? I mean, it was like <laughs> on a per day basis, you know, so, um, but he was, he was very, um, you know, he has this wonderful, had this wonderful manner. So mm. it, it kind of puts you at ease. Um, and um, that was just kind of really, you know, early on in, in the process. I mean, I, and I, I was very fortunate to work with some really great singers and songwriters mm. in that period. I mean, but not, you know, not in the rock and roll field. I mean, Cleo Lane was a jazz singer. Mm. I worked on an album with Rosemary Clooney when she oh, was yeah. making a comeback after being in recovery. Um, Charles Aznavour, the great um, French-Armenian songwriter and artist. I did a number of records with him, including one in France. And then I learned from my Wikipedia page that it was number one in France for a year. <laughs> <laughs> I worked on Alan Parsons' project, Tales of Mystery and Imagination, but I didn't know it until I read it in a magazine 25 years later. 
that, that's, uh, a, that, that's the most fascinating thing, that you're sort of running around from session to session and you, you really, you're not there to follow up what happens or where that no, ends, where your piece ends up. Or um, my, my favorite story like that in the book is, is um, you mentioned that as a child you were, James Bond was a, a thing and your ambition was to play the James Bond theme and you end up playing on the spy who loved the spy me. who loved mm. me and and that you you were nominated for an oscar well i didn't know that no that's crazy <laughs> it's a mental version of, of nobody does it better um with marvin hamlish and a string orchestra it was just me playing electric guitar and i it wasn't until there was some kind of billboard rep retrospective about um uh movie score nominations and i saw that came up but no you know you just don't know yeah you know, you're not always connected to the to the the kind of the after market side of things no. so. but it also seems that you're getting apart from the the pure musical experience but obviously those years of work means that you're not phased by meeting famous people and you're kind of get used to managing expectations and egos and all that kind of thing as, as well you know that uh, you're not phased by the work. You just are kind of wedded to the work specifically. Well, yeah, because the work is the work. Yeah. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter whether one is working with, with somebody famous or somebody that's just getting started. I mean, it's as a professional, you have a job to do. You know, yeah. there is the bonus of, oh, my God, that's, you know, Paul McCartney. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Or Ringo or George or whatever. Um, but, the, but the fundamental thing is that, you know, there's a job to do. Um, yeah. And there's a role to play. Um, and it's a different role as a, as a studio player from it is as, as being an artist oneself. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess then as we kind of approach, you know, you becoming a, a member of Wings, uh, would we be right in saying at that point you've kind of disengaged from live performances and you're exclusively studio based or is there still any live work that you're you're doing at that point in time i didn't do a lot of live work mm. in that period i mean when i first left college i was working with ray ellington um and you know if you're a fan of the goons, the goons yeah um and that was that was kind of cool because one of my predecessors in his band was john mclaughlin so it was like, okay, this is kind of part of the path. And, and it was a good um, experience because there was uh, a lot of sight reading guitar parts where you had this kind of George Shearing kind of sound with the piano and the vibes and the guitar all working together. Um, but, but typically, you know, I was just doing the studio stuff. Now, I, for a short while, I played with um, Pete Brown. Yeah, because he had a band called Piblocto, uh, which was after Battered Ornaments, and I played with him for a bit. And then there was also a band called Landscape that I played with. That eventually, um, never when I left, they didn't replace the guitar. They just functioned without a guitar. It was kind of mostly kind of a jazz fusion thing, but I think they had kind of a minor hit at one point in the 80s. Um, but um, that, you know, it was really, for me, it was it was the studio work um, and I wasn't doing I had no real direct ambition at that point to be a soloist like I eventually became you know, mm. as a, a guitar fingerstyle player that was all you know it was all everything I was doing was at the service of having this career as a studio musician which uh, all of a sudden kind of uh, shifted gears <laughs> Um, so, so oh, one of my first guitar, my first McCartney, my first McCartney was Michael. Um, yeah, you met him on a very auspicious day, I read. Well, we were in, I guess it was August of 77. I was on a transcendental meditation retreat and mm. Mike McCartney was, was also attending it. And I just remember him walking into the room, brandishing a newspaper, declaring that Elvis had died. Good Lord, how do how do you how do you manage information like that while meditating? Uh, you meditate more. End of part one. Intermission. End of intermission. Part two. But it was shortly after that um, that 
I was doing a session at um, CTS in Wembley, um, which was where Wings were, were doing some work on the, um, on the Wings Over America, the, the movie. Mm. You know, doing some cleanup on that. And I was on a jingle session with, um, with Herbie Flowers, who's one of the great English Bass players. Yeah, he's amazing. And we had our musicians' union break and went off to the, the restroom, and there's Paul McCartney zipping up his fly. <laughs> Paul, so he introduced me. And Herbie used to call me La Young Larry. Very few people who <laughs> are allowed to call me Larry, but Herbie was one of them. And anyway, so you know, I was very struck by the fact that Paul was wearing these kind of dirty, muddy cowboy boots, which I thought was interesting. Straight, for, straight from the farm. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Um, and then um, sh not long after that, and I think must have been September of 77, is when I worked with Denny Lane on, um, on the David Essex show, where I was uh, the lead guitarist in the house band. And Denny was a guest, and we did Go Now. Okay. That impressed my playing impressed him, and apparently he called the musical director Richard Niles uh, for the show, and he, he said, "Is he versatile?" And Richard, I was, because apparently, you know, the the my predecessor in Wings, Jimmy, was you know a great rock guitar player, but they wanted somebody who could cover more styles. Because I, I was I, I was going to say that that that's the thing that always strikes me about you coming into the Wings Orbit that, you know, they start with Henry McCulloch, who is very much a blues guitarist. Mm -hmm. They then, Jimmy McCulloch is there, as you say, that kind of rock background. But then whenever you come in, really, you, you can you, you can cover all the bases. Um, well, we what they want to. Yeah. And at that stage, you know, Wings at that stage, um, you know, they're just coming out of, off the back of London Town, which is a sort of softer, poppier, Sound, you know, and it's all, you know, you're saying they're working on the Wings Over America movie, which is a really hard rock sound. So they're, they're, uh, Wings at that stage, I think, had become a pop band and you're kind of taking it back to a harder edged. I think the Wings was always a pop band, hmm. but also a rock band because that's Paul, yeah. you know, I mean, were a pop group and a rock group at the same time. Um, and, and Paul has this enormous musical range. And certainly, you know, when you think about the context of London Town, you know, Linda was pregnant, mm -hmm. kid number four. Um, and Jimmy was kind of like, you know, starting to become distant, mm. distanced from the band. Um, Denny always has this kind of folk streak in him. I mean, that's one of the great things about Denny is this kind of nexus of folk and R&B yeah. in musicianship. Um, and so, you know, London Town, I mean, you know, with a little luck, um, mm -hmm. was a, a hit single. I mean, Mull of Kintyre was, you know, folky. Um, there was, I mean, the closest they got was really I've Had Enough. You know, yes. and we did a video of that right, right after I joined the band up in Scotland. Um, and, you know, my first session with Wings was, was a demo for a song called Same Time Next Year, which Paul was offering, you know, for, for the movie of the same name. Um, it's a very ornate demo. Was, yeah, that was, I mean, it was, you know, it was the best produced demo I'd ever worked on. But like, yes, you know, it is. An orchestra on it. Um, and, you know, it was like a kind of a, a My Love kind of, you know, big ballady thing and and certainly you know what i would have kind of associated with paul but then you know the when we got up to scotland and the first tune we recorded for uh for back to the egg was to you which and is that's a fantastically very, sharp very, song very edgy and kind of punky and then we did you know spin it on which is your know, punk rockabilly yeah um and you know it i think that there was because paul had just signed with columbia records and Chris Thomas had been brought in to co-produce the record, to co-produce Back to the Egg. Um, and I think there was a certain expectation that there should be more of a rock direction because that was the marketability um, at that particular point in time. Yeah. You know, when you think about um, 
you know, the, the artists that were selling, you know, fairly substantially in, in America in the late 70s. I mean, you've got Fleetwood Mac, you've got Aerosmith, you know, you've got um, just the, the rock element, I think, was kind of like a prerequisite, as it were. And certainly we started off in that vein, we, you know, to you, Spin It On, Old Siam, so we're, we're in that first group of tunes that we recorded. Um, and then eventually it kind of, you know, it got softer, but not, and not until after really we, we did the you know, rockestra. Well, it's, it's interesting. Those, those first songs that you start with to you, Spin It On, it, it makes you realize how comparatively plight I've had enough is. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you, you know, those, those, those first songs that you mentioned are really, uh, much harder edged, you know, yeah. and it's, it, I, I always thought it was interesting. I was watching the video for I've had enough. And the first thing you see is your guitar in the video. The focus is in on your guitar, although you're not actually on the record, but, uh, uh neither was Steve, but, you know, but that's the nature of those kind of videos. Yeah. But no, I, I, I know that I know that Jason is now about to talk for about forty minutes about the guitar solo on "To You." Well, well, I I, I know it's I mean it's it's an extraordinary sound, and I know that there's a an even tied harmonizer involved in there somewhere, and it's you know it's it's already you know when you listen to it, it's just a great rock and little song, and then this solo bursts through the track. That was in, that was done. I didn't cut the solo live with the track, but the harmonizer. Paul was manipulating the harmonizer in real time. Mm. So I was playing and what I was hearing in the headphones was what he was doing to what I was playing. So I was responding to that too. Yeah. So the kind of synergy that came out of it. But, you know, that's the kind of thing that I could, I, I mean, I wasn't in the control room because I was out in the studio. Yes. Actually, we were in Scotland, so it was the barn, basically. <laughs> Um, but I could see that being something that Chris Thomas would, would kind of put some direction into. Um, because I think Chris kind of, you know, has that kind of more conceptual background mm. in his record mate. Well, as, as a device, you know, the Eventide Harmonizer is the sound of those, you know, late 70s Bowie albums. You know, Visconti puts them all over low yeah. and Heroes. There's something very, you know, kind of Robert Fripp almost about you know, uh -huh. and, and Bowie-esque about the way that sound kind of comes, just breaks through on, on to you, you know? See, I, and for me, that was a natural thing to do. Yeah. Um, you know, I had been messing around with guitar synths. In fact, there's some guitar synth on, um, on Back to the Egg, um, on that, whatever that opening sequence is called. Um, uh, reception, is it? Reception, yeah. I mean, yeah. That's, um, there's, that's guitar, there's guitar synth on that. Um, right. And on the um, the broadcast, I mean, Paul Paul was using a um, a um, uh, a prototype Gizmotron. Oh right, yes. Um, to get you know, kind of a string sound, and and I was using the guitar synth, and also I think an Ebo, you know. So we got the, we created this kind of orchestral sound with those and with the Mellotron. There's no actual stri real strings on that, um, and. Um, for me, you know, having messed around with synths and also, you know, having gone to college with an electronic music lab hmm. and listened to, you know, I'd, I'd listened to Stockhausen, I'd listened to Edgar Varese, I'd listened to, and, I, and in college I was going to a lot of avant-garde concerts, much like Paul was doing in the Revolver period. You know, yeah. it's like um, I had just been exposed to a lot of stuff, so I wasn't stuck in this has to be a blues guitar solo. You know, it was like, oh, this is cool, and let's see where this goes. And in a way, that's that sort of prefigures what Paul ends up doing subsequently on McCartney too. You know, where he's kind of experimenting with, I suppose, new technology. Experimenting with what at that point was, you know, I mean, drum machines were in their infancy. Um, you know, the sequences were in their infancy. I mean, it was all very you know, very early on. And that album has become, you know, kind of iconic amongst, you know, the EDM set. Yeah, yeah. Although what's interesting is Back to the Egg is iconic in a different way. I mean, I worked on, my daughter Ilse um, wrote 
uh, Harry Styles' song Treat People With Kindness off of his Fine Line album, which I actually played on. Um, and it turns out that Harry Styles is a huge Wings fan and a fan of Back to the Egg in particular. I got I've heard that about Harry. A couple of years ago, um, that it turns out that they'd used the intro to um, Arrow Through Me for an Erica Badu record, where yes. it just swooped, and that was the track. You know, it's like, it, there's, there's some, it, and that, that song in particular has something of a following, I think. Yeah, I'm definitely, I mean, my, my feeling is in the last 10 years, you know, people, particularly once you find like-minded souls online, people are willing to say Back to the Egg is, is the hidden gem, Back to the Egg is the, is the, you know, underestimated album. I think the first time I heard it was in the 90s and it was one of the last McCartney albums I, I got to because, you know, it's not the band on the run type record. And when I got it, I couldn't believe, you know, it's 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 very different to everything else. It's got a very precise kind of um clean sound and it covers such a wide range of styles it's aged phenomenally well that record i i think so too i mean yeah. when i you know on occasion i'll listen to it um and and it, it doesn't seem to age um yeah. whereas some of the other stuff just hasn't quite kept up with um you know sonically kept up um i think the it's I, th I think it, the dichotomy there is is that that period you know for paul i think was not his it's not his favorite time period you know he was turning mm. 40 um i mean it happened after back to the egg came out but he you know he got busted in tokyo um his you know and then you know john lennon is assassinated and the, the Paul doesn't tour again for almost a decade. Mm. You know, they wanted to get the kids settled. So the motivation behind, behind having a band had changed. Mm. You know, I think throughout most of the 70s, Paul was in the, the mode of proving himself beyond the Beatles. Yes. Um, and so Back to the Egg occupies this kind of different space for him. And, and because it got some fairly aggressive criticism from from critics that he kind of respected that and and, and because there wasn't a number one single you know, hmm. because he didn't put you know the hit single was good night tonight which he didn't put on the album um that yeah. i think he kind of just put it off to the side and and then i get reports that he starts you know he gets surprised that he'll look at a kind of chart listings and realize that that was a bigger hit album than he gave it credit for mm. um yeah. and and i think that and i think that's part of the reason why there's been you know such a period of it not getting the deluxe treatment yeah. because it's still coming to terms with what that album kind of where that album fits also it was a wings album it wasn't a paul mccartney and wings album and it, the album seems to come together it's it's not all done in one go. It kind of comes together in these sessions that are spread out over time. So would I be right in saying you, you, when you start the album, you don't really have a sense of what the full album will be? Which is a blessing and a curse. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and we've dealt with this kind of thing in theater where if you, the, the audience kind of needs to know what the style is within the first 10 minutes. Otherwise, they're not quite sure what it is how they're supposed to respond and you know the, the back to the egg is kind of an eclectic record but then so were the yeah. Beatles. so were the later later beetle records i mean you know you listen to the white album if you've never heard the beatles before you wouldn't be able to necessarily predict how that album would progress yeah. um and you know i think that the with with back to the egg it just it's it's an interesting journey and i like albums that are interesting journeys i like records that aren't entirely predictable myself and certainly i've discovered that there's a strong fan base for that album and it always seems to end up in the top three favorite wings albums i mm. i think so but it's 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 like you say it's like the white album or it's like something like fleetwood Mac's tusk uh that that is not well regarded necessarily at the time or isn't regarded as being particularly commercially successful but actually over the longer term, you, you know, it, it has fans and it, it 
constantly, you know, people, you ask people about Fleetwood Mac, more often than not, it's Tusk is what people refer to, not rumours. And I think Back to the Egg is occupies a similar space. I think it's interesting because, you know, critics and public perception can really kind of hurt the the legacy of a particular project. I mean, mm. a, an example, in a non-musical example, is, is the movie Ishtar, which <laughs> critics hated. I actually thought it was a funny movie. But Paul Williams wrote all the songs for yes. that. And they're very funny. And we made an album of those songs that yeah. had the movie been a hit, the album would have been released. Well, um, as it turns out, there's this subculture of fans who love that movie and they get together and they sing the songs, or at least they did pre-COVID. Um, so there is a, you know, this, and Back to the Egg has this thing where, you know, like if you don't, if you don't look beyond the superficial, then it's just something that was another Wings album. But yeah. when you actually dig into it, it's a different experience, I think. Well, well, I'm I'm a big fan of Ishtar. I'm not prepared to sing any of the songs, but uh, <laughs> I, I I remember going to see it in the in the, in in the cinema when it came out and not understanding why people didn't like it. It's yeah. it's a it's it's a it's a Bob Hope Bing Crosby. It's a road movie. It's a Hope and Crosby movie. Yeah, you know. You know, the, there's a lot going on in the Back to the Egg era. You know, there's also the Rupert demos and. Um, you know, you, you, your own song Maisie gets recorded as part of the sessions. And it, it seems to have been a, there's a bit of anything goes going on at the time. Well, I, I think it was just, it depended on what happened from one day to the next. I mean, um, Rupert was all done in a day. Okay. Days. Yeah, And you can hear, you know, as, as mm. it progressed, the piano was starting to get more and more out of tune. Um, there were a few tracks that had either been worked on previously and we overdubbed to, or maybe something that got added in. But the, um, but essentially, Paul said, you know, I need. We had one day, and I, he said, I need to do some demos of this because I'm trying to, you know, move this project forward, and so that's what we did. Um, but it was just that one day thing. Maisie um, was one afternoon. I had come up with this little finger picking piece, and uh, we were in the studio, and Linda wasn't there that day. Um, Paul said, well, anybody got any tunes? And I said, well, I have this. And he said, well, let's record it. I mean, and you know, those kind of things go very quickly. Yeah. Uh, and um, it ended up, you know, it's kind of cool because it's really the, my first kind of bona fide fingerstyle guitar composition. And I have Paul McCartney playing bass on it. So. That can't be bad. <laughs> that's, that's a good start. At, at what point does Rockestra become part of the story? Because this is particularly the associated film, which seems to be lost to the midst of time. This appears to have been quite a unique, to put it mildly, um, idea that only maybe Paul could have had the phone book to pull off. <laughs> yeah, well, there's very few people could get on, get on the phone and call that many yes. stars and get them all in the studio doing something, you know, that they're basically session players. Um, <laughs> But he, I remember we were in Scotland and he said, I have this tune orchestra and I want to record it in, you know, at Abbey Road. And, you know, so it all got booked for October 3rd. And we had done, when we were recording at Lim Castle, because we went uh, July of 78, we were in Scotland. And then um, by October, and then um, September, we were at Lim Castle in the south coast which was you know fairly close to where paul and linda you know had moved to Peasmarsh. they'd moved out of london mm. it's um, for sale at the minute by the way Nymph castle yeah i heard yeah yeah <laughs> i'm not sure that i'm in the market for a 13th century <laughs> no um but um you know and then that was a very different vibe you know we recorded getting closer there um we recorded um after the ball, um, we did demo. We did a demo of Rockestra where we just mm -hmm. overdubbed, you know, Denny and I overdubbed multiple guitars, um, and that was kind of that was the demo. And then October third, we we got, went into Abbey Road and um, and recorded it with with the full Rockestra, which was very cool. I mean, for me, you know, this guitar section. With Pete Townsend, Dave Gilmore, Denny Lane, Hank Marvin from The Shadow, yeah. like my first idol. 
um, and myself. And I'm, you know, I'm standing next to Hank. I mean, how cool is this? You know? Was, was mean, that the first time you'd, you'd met Hank Marvin? Was that yeah, first wow. time I, yeah. And then, of course, we had John Bonham on drums and Kenny Jones. I mean, Keith Moon would have been on the session, but he died, you know, mm. a month before. Um, and um, not even a month. I mean, it was a couple of weeks. Um, uh, just, you know, it was, that was a remarkable session. Um, but we did two tunes in, in an afternoon. I mean, it was really, um, it was very, done very efficiently. And the technical side of it, I mean, that was the first time I had seen two 24-track machines, you know, sync together. Kind of sync together, yeah. Were they tracking each guitar individually? Or how do you mic up a session like that with all yeah, those no, guitars? Yeah, no, everything was individually mic'd. Because, wow. you know, at that point we had, well, let's see, it was, um, I mean, with two 24-track machines, you've got 46 tracks to work with. Because, of course, you yeah. need... Um, you sync. Need, you know, you need time code to link them up on, on the 24th track. Um, you know, I, I don't know how many tracks they use for each drum kit. Um, it's quite, you know, I mean, they wouldn't necessarily have, you know, done, you know, six, seven, eight channels mm. for each drum kit because they'd run out of channels pretty quick with that many musicians but um but it was um it was you know they brought in another console and it was very well engineered i mean it was all of this was being filmed secretly filmed secretly filmed because they had built like you know false corners into the studio and um the um so nobody was really conscious of the fact that there were cameras there I think if anybody had thought about it, they would think, oh, wait a minute, we're being filmed. But yeah. everybody was just too busy kind of making music. I mean, to, to hear it's recorded that way means that a surround sound mix might be a fantastic idea, maybe. Who knows? Yeah, I think that, you know, that's a question of whether one goes back mm. to the multi-tracks and stuff like that. And I, I, it's not the kind of thing I could imagine happening. Oh, it's a pity. Um, nowadays, of course, you know, it's, it's Dolby Atmos rather than... Uh, you know, yeah, just, just as I've caught up to the other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the, a couple of other songs, maybe if we could touch on. Uh, Cage, which is another sort of uh, hugely admired song, that one that got away. Well, Cage was a funny one. I mean, the title came because of the chord progression. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. A-G-E. Um, I always thought that the ballad section, section in the middle would have made a great standalone song. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, Cage was kind of one of those McCartney um, collage type things where he puts together, you yeah. know, two, three, sometimes more fragments of things and turns them into, you know, one song. And sometimes that works great. Um, you know, again and again and again, Denny's song was actually two songs that Paul said, why don't you put them together? Mm. Uh, with Cage, it just never, it never quite, to me, it never quite got convincing, mm. which is why I think it didn't end up on the album. Um, it wasn't really necessary. And we'd spent a fair amount of time working on that. I, I, I was going to say it's a song that I, that, as far as I, from what I've read, you actually put a lot of effort into, a lot of time went into it, and but but maybe slightly unfocused. You know, were you miking up Paul's car at one point together? Yeah, one point. I'm, well, there's a um, there's like a little synth figure mm. in, in that at one point. You know, they were trying to make it make it work with a car horn, and so they you know put a mic on Paul's Rolls Royce and were recording <laughs> recording the horn. Um, it. And then there was that, that section, that, you know, the kind of pipe organ, organ section where we were recording ourselves blowing over bottles of scotch to get, you know, get the tones. And then, you know, if you wanted a lower tone, you had to drink more scotch. So we were all a bit, a bit drunk by the time we got back. Um, you know, so... But that, that's, a, that's a very Beatle-y approach. You know, yeah. that, 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 that kind of studio experimentation, you know, let's, let's just oh, get yeah. some bottles in or let's... See what happens. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, of course, if Beatles, it would have been Scotch and Coke. Well, that's true. <laughs> that's true. That's true. 
Um, and, and, and maybe one, one last question about one song, just you can answer a question. And I, I don't mean this to be in any way, you know, I'm not musical in any way, but in, in We're Open Tonight, mm-hmm. is the guitar slightly detuned or slightly yeah, not my, quite? Well, when I took my 12-string guitar out of the case, one of the strings, I think it might have been the third string, was not that the strings were not tuned mm. the way they should have been. Should be, yeah. But it fit, so I just left <laughs> touch it, um, and you know, so it's there's like an extra, there's an extra little bit of ear candy in there. Yeah, that. I mean, musically, that's not a complicated tune. It's just you know, it's like a, a G six going to a G minor six. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a cool sound, and I was sitting in a stair in, a, in the spiral staircase of the of the castle. Um, so sonically, it was kind of a cool thing to be doing. Yeah, yeah. And that was supposed to be the title track of the album originally. Is that right? Not to my knowledge, but okay. Yeah. There's this talk that that originally back to the egg was supposed to be called "We're Open Tonight," but there was some kind yeah, the of theme throughout really, through the album. The album really didn't have a title until very late in the day. Yeah. And, uh, you know, before the album comes out, we get to Goodnight Tonight, which mm-hmm. I think, you know, leaving that off the album is kind of worse than Strawberry Fields not being on Sgt. Pepper. You know, I think it's an absolutely <laughs> egregious decision to make because Goodnight Tonight, even now we're talking about songs that don't sound dated. Goodnight Tonight sounds like something from about 10 years later with, you know, beats and dance moves and, you know, Spanish guitar, and all, you know, sounds. It's, a, it's one hell of a single. And it really, I can't understand why it comes out so close to the album, but doesn't make the album. Uh, I think that you know, Paul's philosophy, and this goes back to the fact that in England, you know, predominantly the Beatles singles were not on the albums in True, America. Yeah. But in England, you know, I feel fine wasn't on a, an album. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Hard Day's Night was because there was a, the movie soundtrack, but, um, you know, but She Loves You, um, you know, all those early singles were not on the album. Their deal with EMI was, you know, um, two albums and, you know, four, four singles four, a year. Yeah. A year. So you, you know, and they were so prolific that they could, they could do that. Um, the, so Paul, you know, Paul talked about this kind of value for money for the fans um, to not put the single on the album, but to have that be, you know, an extra thing. And much to Columbia Records' chagrin, because mm. yeah. they certainly sold a lot more copies of Back to the Egg if, if Good Night Tonight and potentially um, Daytime Nighttime Suffering have been on there. Um, but I think you bring up an interesting point in terms stylistically because the last two Wings hits were Good Night Tonight and Coming Up. Mm. And I you know, yes. refer to the live version of Coming Up because mm. that was the one that went to number one in America. And both of those are, are basically they're dance records. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and nine, I mean, in the, the late 70s, early 80s, not only did you have the kind of the Studio 54 disco thing? And I was very familiar with that because I'd worked on a number of records for the French artist Cerrone, who was kind of like the other pillar of Eurodisco along with Giorgio Moroder. Um, and Good Night Tonight wasn't a disco record. You know, it was a dance record. Dance record, yes. yeah. And, you know, it had kind of uh, Latin flavor to it. Um, to the extent, I mean, when that record came out, the summer of 1969, it was the number one record in all the dance clubs in Europe. Yeah. Um, and, and it's still a record I would, you know, uh, you know, if, if, if you're having making a playlist, I still think it's an essential, you know, playlist filler. You know, if people who maybe don't know the song are surprised at where it's from or how it sounds. And I think 1979, Paul's bass playing, he's doing some phenomenal bass playing in Good Night Tonight and also you know, that kind of uh, on reception even. He's, it sounds like, you know, uh, Ian Jury and the Blockheads type bass lines. You know, he's, he's obviously soaking in contemporaneous bass sounds and bringing them into the Wings palette. Oh, well, I think he always has always had an ear for kind of what was going on in bass playing. I mean, mm. you think about, you know, Rubber Soul and, and the Drive My Car 
you know, he and Ringo basically, you know, doing Motown. Mm. Um, the, he's always had this kind of consciousness and, and, you know, emulating James Jameson or Carol Kay on the Motown records and on the Beach Boys records, respectively. Um, I think that, you know, the bass... In fact, by the time Wings toured, I mean, with that UK tour, when Paul was playing the Yamaha bass... Yeah, that's a hefty bass. Well, you know, it's just... It's muscular. Mm. A lot of girth to that sound. And he was playing hard, too. Mm. Um, and I think that's some of his, his finest live bass playing. And it's funny, earlier you mentioned kind of the Wings Over America band as being more of a rock band. Yeah. But, but the fact is that Steve Holly, as a drummer, but compared with Joe English, that Joe is an American rock drummer, but Steve is that heavy backbeat mm -hmm. English rock drummer. And I think that the rock aspect of Back to the Egg is heavier than that the, yes. of the, the, the middle period Wings. And, and those, those, that single, you know, uh, Good Night Tonight and Daytime Nighttime Suffering, I just have to ask, they're recorded in Replica Studio, which seems to Not be... Not entirely. Okay. Uh, Replica Studios was, you know, in January of 79, we couldn't get into Abbey Road because Cliff Richard had it booked. And, and in order to mix, we didn't necessarily need a live room. Mm. So Paul recreated the control room of St Abbey Road Studio 2. Um, in the basement of his studio in Soho Square in central London and called it Replica because it, it was the same of that. And it just looked the same as Studio Two's control room? Well, I mean, not exactly. Okay, uh, that's always what I wondered. So with a, a photograph of, of, of Abbey Road, like the, the recording room. Um, and the... Um, the plan was that we were, we were just going to mix because we were substantially done recording. Mm. Um, and we didn't do a lot more recording on Back to the Egg except for the Black Dyke Mills Band, uh, which we did uh, a little while later at, at Abbey Road. Um, and we did some mixing later at Abbey Road, but, but the intention was to mix it in Replica. And then the first thing that happens is Paul walks in on the Monday morning with daytime, nighttime suffering, and says, I want to record this. We had had a, a, a meeting the previous Friday where we all sat around a conference table and just said, well, what, what's next? And, and it was agreed we needed a single. And that was when the discussion was, well, we don't want to take anything off of the album to release as a single. Um, and, and so there was this kind of somewhat competitive idea you know, that anybody could walk in on Monday and, you know, bring in a, a song. But the reality was that, you know, Paul was, Paul was always going to get the first, first crack. Yeah. And he came in with Daytime Night Drum Suffering and said, I want to record it. Now, we had to set the drums up in the little kitchenette. There was just this little kind of area. So the drums are there. I'm there. Paul's there with a RMI um, electric piano. And um, we cut the track then and then continued to work on it. And during the course of that week, um, the, the raw track of Goodnight Tonight had already been recorded. Um, and then we then added to it. I mean, I did that flamenco style guitar solo, did some electric guitar. We added vocoder stuff and, you know, just... Um, stuff i mean just you know a lot of ear candy on the track and um you know with that flamenco thing i mean it was um let's do a kind of a flamenco style guitar break well i didn't have an acoustic guitar there so i borrowed denny's um, ovation and um they just ran the track and i kind of tossed something off and i said you mean something like that and they said that's exactly what we wanted so it was like a one take thing i feel i feel very I feel very aggrieved on your behalf that Denny gets to take that flourish in the video. Um, well, I am. I mean, the video. I am playing the acoustic. Yeah, but Denny well, step. Denny, Denny steps forward and 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 does the flourish and. I have to say, you 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 all look as if you're having a fantastic time making that video. It was great fun. And, um, and the 
that we had been in the studio for so long that to actually get up on a stage yeah. with, you know, admittedly the audience was the crew, but it was a large crew. And in between takes, we were doing a lot of jamming and we were playing Elvis tunes. And, you know. I was going to say, you, you, you in particular, you're the one that's acting in that video. I think you're, you're kind of, you're doing lots of little asides. And, uh, it's, and the other thing I would say is there is a fantastic photograph. I think, is it your, is it your grandfather in your book? There's a photograph of your grandfather, and grandfather it, in a tuxedo, and then me it, in a it. It looks as if he just stepped out of the video. It's it's a very cool thing. It's a very cool thing. Yeah, that was you know in doing the research for my guitar with wings book, I just was we started unearthing photographs that I'd never seen, and that that was one that you know I had no idea even existed until my brother managed to secure it from somebody in the family. And this is the point at which we're going to take a break. Lawrence was extremely generous with his time, so much so that there will be a second part to this interview later this week. In the meantime, check us out in all the usual places, nothingisrealpod.com, at BeatlesPod on Twitter, the Nothing Is Real Facebook group, and uh, William, who is looking after our Instagram account, will be posting there. See you for part two. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.